Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead on The Exchange today. Layoffs are down. Sales jobs are hot. Zoom is so 2020 and people want to get paid. We've got all the latest trends in the labor market ahead of tomorrow's key jobs report. Plus the cardboard boom. Demand is so major that international paper wants to spin off its paper business to focus solely on cardboard. We're going to talk to the CEO about that and what it's telling us about the economy. And the retail resurgence, dumping the college degree, and adults are racing to straighten their teeth. It's all ahead in rapid fire today, but we start with the markets. Dom Chu here with that for us. Kelly, is Zoom so 2020? It feels like it's not been that long, I guess, since we've talked about it. It's over. It's over. It's done, apparently. Well, I'll show you later on about why that trade is playing out in the markets today. But first, we'll start out with the overall picture. The Dow Industrials, another record high here. The S&P 500, 4181, the last trade there, up about one-third of 1% in the NASDAQ composite. Again, lagging just about flat on the day, 13589 We'll put that gold star up there next to the Dow Jones industrial average. Now, the work from home trade. Kelly pointed out Zoom, so 2020. We'll check out some of these work from home trades that we've seen over the course of the last several months. Zoom video, a darling of that pandemic era work from home regime, is now down 2% in today's trade. DocuSign, another one of those work from homes, is down 2%. 3% for Chewy, the online retailer of pet foods. Not just dog food. I've made that mistake before. So cat lovers out there, I apologize. And then Wayfair actually bucking the trend today, up 3% on the heels of its earnings report as well. So online furniture apparently still looking good for some traders and investors. And on the cryptocurrency side, we've talked about Doge a lot. We've talked about Bitcoin a lot. Let's focus on Ethereum today because Ether, according to Coinmetrics, is 35.62. It was north of $3,600 per token at one point during the highs today, up 1,600% over the course of the last one year. So, yes, Ether. It's a fan of uh, fans of Ether all over the place, including in the NFT world. Watch that particular trade. Record high for Ether today. Kelly, I'll send things back over to you. Bob Bassani making some bullish comments about it this week. Uh, People definitely tuned into that. Dom, thank you. And we'll see you soon, our Dom Chu. Let's turn now to Washington, where President Biden is expected to deliver remarks on his $2 trillion infrastructure plan this afternoon, as his American Families Plan to fund child care education and other initiatives is catching some heat. An independent report found the plan will actually cost $700 billion more than the White House estimated due to tax credits and other costs included in it. Could all these costs end up outweighing the benefits? For more on all of this, let's bring in the vice president's chief economic advisor, Mike Pyle, who joins us alongside our own Elon Moy this afternoon. Elon, kick things off for us. Well, thank you so much, Kelly, and thank you, too, to Mike for joining us. And where I'd like to start is what Kelly just alluded to. There have been so many different estimates now of how much the American Families Plan is going to cost, how much revenue it's going to raise, and the impact that it's going to have on the economy. The Penn Wharton budget model estimated that this plan would actually be a drag on growth because the debt would be so large. So I know that you guys don't agree with that. So explain to us what they got wrong or what they didn't understand. So thank you for having me, first off. A couple of thoughts. First, 
you know, we think the investments in the families plan, the investments in the jobs plan are absolutely critical for uh, responding to a set of uh, challenges, a set of barriers uh, to growth, to inclusivity that have grown up in this economy over decades. And what these investments are really targeted at doing is making this uh, a more productive economy, a more inclusive economy, an economy that's going to grow over the long term. Specifically with respect to the Penn uh, Wharton model, you know, this is just a place where we disagree. So, for example, you know, one of the assumptions they have is that a paid leave program like what the president and vice president are proposing in the families plan is going to cause more uh, women, more workers to leave the workforce. Uh, that's not how most economists think of it. That's not how we think of it. We think this is a real boon to allowing uh, more women, more workers to join the workforce, to make this economy grow faster, to make it larger over time. And that's just an assumption we disagree with and we think most economists disagree with, too. But it's not just on the spending side where there are some questions. There are also questions on the revenue side and how much you guys can actually raise from some of these tax increases. The Tax Foundation found just today that you know closing some of the loopholes around the Medicare tax would only raise about $200 billion rather than $300 billion. The Tax Policy Center is raising questions about whether you guys could actually bring in an additional $700 billion from enhanced IRS enforcement. So I, I guess the fundamental question here is, if your numbers are off, what happens if not only does the economy maybe grow in the short term, but that in the long term we end up on an unsustainable course for the national debt? So we think we've put forward a very uh, comprehensive set of revenue proposals uh, on the corporate and business side, uh, on the individual side, that's going to make the economy uh, fairer, on the business side is going to make the economy more competitive, and that we think, you know, we stand by our estimates. We think that over the next uh, decade and a half, we're going to pay for these uh, critical investments to our economy uh, in full, and it's an essential piece of, of what it means to grow this economy uh, more inclusively uh, and more strongly over time. Mike, it's Kelly here. Uh, thanks for joining us. What would you say to all the people who are snapping up cryptocurrency as a hedge against these spending plans that your administration has laid out? So I'm not going to offer uh, any, uh, any investment tips. I think what we're focused on is uh, getting these critical investments done, uh, making sure that the economy is built on a strong foundation for growth, for, produ for productivity, for inclusivity over the long term. And let's also remember, this is an economy that is still uh, very much in a hole from the pandemic over the last year. You know, we've been very encouraged by some of the data we've been seeing, whether it's around uh, claims, whether it's around GDP. But let's remember, uh, this is an economy that's still 8 million jobs in the hole relative to where it was uh, just 15 months ago. And we've got a long way to go to get this economy back fully on its feet so we can then build for the long term. So as a follow on to that, what happens if you go down a path of deficit spending and so forth and all of a sudden interest rates start to rise? You know, when we often talk about the Federal Reserve and its policymaking, they've laid out a clear set of rules, so to speak, rules of thumb. You know, when employment does a certain thing over here and inflation does this, you know, that we're going to change our bond purchases accordingly. Are there, can you tell us what your thinking is about that? In other words, if interest rates rise, it puts pressure on the uh, budget. You have to maybe uh, account for that somehow. How would the government respond? You know, is there a way that you can kind of quickly adapt to that situation to avoid uh, getting into a real crunch? So what I'd say is just let's take a step back. 
and think about the comprehensive nature of the president and vice president's economic strategy here. It's first to uh, invest in making sure we dig this economy out of the hole that it's found itself in because of the coronavirus pandemic over the last year. You know, what we've seen uh, in uh, bond markets elsewhere has been just reflective of the fact that, you know, the economy is now kind of digging out of that hole and growth is now expected to return. That's an encouraging thing. You know, with respect to the long term, the jobs plan, the families plan, uh, investments that we intend to pay for over that 15-year horizon, you know, these are ultimately uh, focused on making the economy uh, grow faster, making it more productive, uh, bringing more people into the economy, making it more inclusive. That's ultimately positive for growth. Uh, that's ultimately positive for just the overall macroeconomic picture. And that's what we're focused on. And we think, you know, if we do those things, the rest will take care of itself. Mike, the president has been focused a lot on small businesses and the role they're playing in this recovery. He's been talking about the restaurant revitalization fund and the launch of that this week. The vice president has made it a point to meet with a diverse group of small business owners across the country. So how are you selling this plan to them? And they're going to be the ones ultimately who are going to have to shoulder a lot of the tax burden for the investments that you're planning to make. So you're exactly right. Small business has been a critical focus for both the president and the vice president uh, as we work to provide relief uh, so we can get the economy back up on its feet uh, post the pandemic. Uh, as you said, the vice president was in uh, Rhode Island yesterday sitting down with small business owners, including restaurant owners, about how they can uh, get access to the relief uh, that we're putting out there. And I think, again, one of the things we've been focused on as an administration is uh, this is a, a crisis that has hit particular parts of the uh, economy especially hard. Uh, low and moderate income communities, uh, black and brown communities, uh, women-owned small businesses, and really focusing our efforts on being sure that those hard-hit parts of the economy, those hard-hit parts of the small business sector are getting access to relief and able to build back stronger. That's what the vice president and the president spending a lot of time doing. And we have confidence that if we get uh, shots in arms, uh, you know, keep go moving ahead, if we get mm -hmm. relief in the hands of small business, that's going to be the most positive thing we can do for the economy and for the small business sector. But, Mike, are they okay with seeing their taxes go up in order to get all that relief? So one thing I would make clear on uh, the tax proposals the president has put forward, uh, no one making less uh, than $400,000 is going to see their taxes go up. Uh, that's just a bedrock uh, proposition from the president and the vice president. Uh, that means the overwhelming majority of Americans are not going to see any changes uh, in their taxes. If anything, they're going to see uh, decreases in, in taxes by virtue of some of the things we're doing on uh, the child tax credit and what have you. And so we're just very confident that if we get a uh, relief out the door, if we get shots in arms, if we make these investments in the long term, that's going to be uh, a really strong environment for small businesses, for businesses writ large, to grow and prosper uh, over the medium to long term. Right, Michael, we'll keep watching it and hope to have you back and have this conversation again soon. Thank you so much, Mike, for joining us. And Kelly, I'll send it back to you. Our appreciation, Elon, for bringing that to us, Elon Moy. Tomorrow we get the all-important monthly jobs report. The Federal Reserve wants to see several months of strong readings as a sign of substantial progress in the labor market. But my next guest is seeing some promising signs already. There are shortages of hourly workers, increased demand for sales jobs, and less interest in remote work. Joining me now with more is Evan Sohn. He's the chairman and CEO of Recruiter.com. Evan, it's great to see you again. So is Zoom, so 2020. <laughs> great to see you too, Kelly. 
look, you know, we're seeing now the word hybrid, where it used to mean a uh, gas and electric car. Hybrid now means uh, both an in-person and a remote job. And we actually, in our recruiter index survey, uh, 20, a little, uh, about 21%, 21% were actually remote and everything else was in-person was 42% and 37% were actually hybrid jobs. And this is really gonna be a very interesting dynamic because a hybrid still requires to be in-person. So this notion of being able to find talent, and again, our recruiter index is all about the recruiters. If I have to find talent that's remote, I could find it anywhere. If I have to find talent that's in person, they have to be local, but guess what? Hybrid is also localized. So we're seeing this return back to localized sourcing and finding localized talent across all industries. Yeah, and this plays into the large discussion we're, we're having here all the time about what work is going to look like. Is it going to be more like 2019 or more like 2020? Let me ask you about trends and momentum because we do like to check in with you ahead of the jobs report and your recruiter index softened a little bit last month. Is there any reason to expect a similar softening might be picked up, uh, broadly speaking, tomorrow morning? Yeah, so it was really interesting because last month, the recruiter in the index showed that the average recruiter was working on around 16 open jobs. That number jumped up to 20. So there's a lot of demand for hiring. Now, some of that is replacement hiring. And I think you're hearing people talk about uh, people changing jobs and the need to change and get a new experience. Uh, but the overall sentiment actually ticked down one bit to uh, 3.7 from 3.8. The month over month was the same, but the outlook for like 90 days was slightly down. And I think that we're seeing this tightening of the highly skilled labor market. And again, being able to find the right person is no longer just about finding the right talent. I have to find the right talent with the right location itself. So let me ask what that means, the tightening in the highly skilled segment of the labor force. Could you explain that a little bit? Yeah, sure. No problem. So if I needed a Java programmer, for instance, and I didn't care where they were located, I can find a Java programmer anywhere on the planet who'd be willing to work for that role. Now, if I need them to be a hybrid and I need them to actually come into the office, then I'm, I'm limited in the number of people that I could find specifically for that job. So you've seen sort of the, uh, the tech sector where they were incredibly hot, having a difficulty in finding these roles. And re remember, there's a lot of churn going on in corporate America, about 22 to 27% of voluntary churn. So companies are constantly switching employees. Employees want new opportunities. Uh, we're seeing that a lot. 22% uh, of the uh, candidates wanted a new experience. Yeah. Uh, pretty incredible. The, the YOLO economy is my favorite <laughs> uh, trend piece of the year. And, and I think you're picking up on that too. So, so last question, this actually is really interesting, is I, are we seeing in the labor market what we're seeing shortage-wise and other parts of the supply chain? In other words, if we see a, a slowdown in the pace of hiring, is that actually because people couldn't find the, help, the workers they needed? We usually interpret that as, oh, slower hiring means less demand for workers. But what you're describing sounds to me like if we see a slowdown in the number of jobs being added, it could be because they can't find the people to fill those positions. So it's, it's kind of acting as a break on the economy, even though people want to hire. I completely agree. You know, you asked me a question like in June, you walked by a restaurant and you saw a help wanted sign. Yes. And you're like, how can that be? So here we are again. Uh, th there is lots of demand for hourly workers and hourly demand across the board. And anecdotally, we're seeing uh, our customer service clients. Uh, they're providing customer service call centers. Uh, they're having a hard time. And you're seeing this sort of change where instead of going after someone who's an existing skill set in that labor, let's go after a different pool of, of people. 
whether it's the high school graduate, the new college grad that's having a hard time finding a job and creating these experiences for those folks uh, to enter into the job market, maybe not in the career that they want to end up in, but certainly a great stop along the way. Listen, it started with the restaurants and now it's the eyebrow threading salon. It's the you know cigar shop needing a hostess like the, the, the signs are all over town. Yeah, it's incredible. You know, you, you guys posted the other day, there was 48% small businesses uh, with open roles, and yet there's nine plus million people unemployed. Uh, we have to figure that out. And yeah. we have to either change where we're trying to find those folks, or really convince this new population of workers that, hey, it's about experiences, and you're going to get a great experience working at this company. It, you, know, you don't have to be there for 20 years. Mm-hmm. You could be there for a year. You could be there for two years. You can get great experiences along the way. And let me tell you something. Being a waitress is good training for being a mom because you got to do everything with one hand. And there's a lot of balancing uh, that's required. I, I, look, everyone had their first job somewhere, yeah. right? <laughs> Evan, thanks so much uh, for joining us with some insight into these trends. We appreciate it. Thanks so much, Kelly. Evan Sohn is with Recruiter.com. Coming up, we have two great CEO interviews on tap. First, his company makes one in every three cardboard boxes in America. The stock is up 90% in a year. Will the trend hold post-pandemic? The CEO of International Paper joins us next with more on that and why he's watching Biden's infrastructure plan very closely. Plus, the chip shortage, derailing new car production and pushing up sales of used cars as a result. AutoNation, Advanced Auto Parts, and Cars.com seeing some nice gains so far this year. The CEO of Cars.com joins us to talk about that and more ahead. Don't go anywhere. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. The pandemic surge in e-commerce fueling record demand for cardboard last year. International Paper is the nation's largest container board producer and recently announced it's spinning off its paper business to concentrate solely on packaging. It already produces one in every three cardboard boxes made here in the U.S. And the company's chief executive says that shift is the logical next step towards building a better company. He joins us now. Let's welcome in Mark Sutton. He's the chair and CEO of International Paper. Mark, it's good to see you again. And my first question is, are there cardboard shortages developing out there? Good afternoon, Kelly, and thanks for having me on. It's good to see you again as well. Uh, There's not cardboard shortages, but the supply chain is very stretched right now. Uh, We've learned how to do things differently during the pandemic. Some segments got really strong at the expense of others. Those are different types of packages, different types of capital-installed machines. Uh, Our employees showed up every day and continue to do so, and we're meeting customer needs. But it is a stressed and tight supply chain. What is the cardboard box indicator telling us about the U.S. economy right now? I think the economy's gaining steam. Um, the e-commerce section, just as an example, really, really grew last year, more than 50 percent for us over 2019. Uh, in April of this year, uh, so against last year's April, which was the first big pandemic month, we're up uh, over 25 percent. Some of that came at the expense of traditional channels like food to restaurants and things of that nature. 
but we're beginning to see strength in all of our segments, uh, even the ones that uh, were hurt last year when businesses were closed without any real let up in e-commerce. What's pricing like and are you having any trouble either with supply shortages or worker shortages? So on the pricing side, on our inputs, it's it's wood fiber and recovered fiber. Uh, There has been some upward movement in that energy and some of the chemicals that we use, uh, petroleum derivatives for adhesives and things of that nature have have gone up. Labor is difficult. Um, We have um, the ability to add Shifts, not all of our plants run 24-7 in the box business. Uh, hiring people has been a challenge, getting them trained um, and getting them, to, getting them to stay. So we've been making up some of the capacity shortages with asking our employees to work some extra overtime. We've been managing it so far, but labor is tight right now. And how are vaccinations playing into that? Are they required? Are you offering incentives for workers to get them? Is it not a factor? We're not, no, we're not requiring vaccinations, but we're highly encouraging it and making it as easy as possible. Many of our plants have become vaccination centers in the different locations that, that they uh, occupy. And even at our, at our Memphis headquarters, we partnered with local hospitals uh, to put vaccination events together for our employees and their families. Wow. Uh, fascinating, because, again, these are uh, pretty big places <laughs> that can manage that kind of flow. It would make a lot of sense. I, last question before you go, Mark, is about recycling, because with this surge in e-commerce, our living rooms are overflowing with Amazon boxes. And, you know, we put a box ours up and we flatten them all the time. We put them out to the curb. And but you keep hearing that not all of this cardboard really is recycled, that a lot of it ends up in landfills. Can you speak to whether that's true? And if there's anything better that we or the companies can do to cut down on waste? Well, there's a couple of things we're doing. First of all, um, our products are made with renewable natural resources at the beginning of life, wood fiber, and corrugated boxes are recycled at about a 92% rate. Wow. The e-commerce piece, the big, the big opportunity there is to take the amount of packaging down. So, for example, International Paper developed a proprietary system called eBoss, an e-commerce box optimization system, where we have proprietary algorithms. We work with our customers Walmart's a great example, and we look at everything they ship, we analyze the data, and we recommend a suite of boxes that takes their total amount of packaging down. Hmm. Across our customer base, we've reduced um, empty volume by 14%. Shipping their products is 10 times more expensive than the box, so that's a real value-added service that we provide our customers. It's fascinating. It sounds like an interview question. You know, how would you <laughs> decrease the the surface area, the you know, the area of this box to fit these things uh, to fit these things better? But the whole economy kind of hinges on it. Uh, from the eBoss himself, Mark, thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Mark Sutton of International Paper. Coming up, PayPal is higher on earnings today and on expectation that consumers will keep making digital payments post-pandemic. Shares are up just under 2%. We're going to dig further into those numbers and their strategy to make these changes stick as people head back to the stores. Plus, a triple tax threat to real estate will tell you what impact the president's tax plan could have on the housing market. Don't go anywhere. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. 
Welcome back, everybody. Let's get you a quick check on the markets. Dow's up 150 points. Look at the Nasdaq, though, lagging again. Longest losing streak since, I think, October. And we're watching some volatility in the vaccine names today after the U.S. backed waiving patent protections on COVID vaccines. Earlier this morning, German Chancellor Angela Merkel reportedly came out in opposition of that plan that boosted these stocks off their lows. But you can see they're still negative, around one and a half percent in Pfizer's case. Moderna also reported earnings this morning. It had been down as much as 12 percent before Merkel's comments. Uh, So we're looking at that one now rallying to only a half percent decline. Meanwhile, shares of at home group are up 17 and a half percent after they announced they'll be taken private by Hellman and Friedman for nearly three billion dollars in cash. Stockholders are getting 36 bucks a share. We're a little bit above that right now. But this company was at $1.20 during the early parts of the pandemic last year, making it one of the biggest runaway winners of the stay-at-home trade. And several names are plunging on the heels of quarterly results. Fastly, Redfin, Rocket Companies, and Etsy all moving lower by anywhere from 14 to 25 percent in Fastly's case. And speaking of Etsy, don't miss Mad Money at 6 p.m. Eastern tonight for an exclusive interview with CEO Josh Silverman. Let's get to Rahel now for our news update. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Kelly. Hello, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. Switzerland says that it remains unconvinced that COVID vaccine production will be sped up by waiving patent rights. A government official says that U.S. support of waivers is a significant step, but many questions remain about how to improve global access to more vaccines. A new poll shows tepid support for vaccinating children. The Kaiser Family Foundation found 30 percent of parents with kids ages 12 to 15 will get them vaccinated as soon as shots become available. 26% are taking a wait-and-see approach. 18% will say say they'll only do it if schools require the shots. And then about one in four say they will definitely not get their kids vaccinated. And this is pretty sweet. In Holland, researchers have trained bees to detect the coronavirus. So test results, Kelly, come back in seconds. The trained bees use their keen sense of smell and stick out their tongues to indicate a positive result. And the reward is a drink of sugar water. So they train them essentially showing them that if there's COVID, you get some water, you stick out your tongue. If there's no COVID, you don't get water. So they don't stick out their tongue. Bees have tongues. I mean, this is the news. And they say it's like straw like too. I mean, I guess to get the pollen out of the flower makes sense. Uh, Thank you, Rahel. We'll see you in a moment. Rahel Solomon. Retail detail, how Americans are spending their money. Olive Garden is Darden's shining star. The rush to fix smiles as mask mandates are lifted. And no degree necessary. The C-suite push to remove some hiring requirements. It's all ahead in rapid fire right after this. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar right now. It is time for Rapid Fire. And here to break down the headlines are Rahel Solomon, Dom Chu and Courtney Reagan. Welcome one and all. First, let's start with this retail renaissance that we're seeing because tapestry and is it contour, Courtney, or contour? It's contour. Contour. Okay, you you see on the screen there, it's spelled uh, quirky. Anyway, they delivered earnings this morning with sales that bounced back or in some cases surged. Over 2019's pre-pandemic levels, Contour's up nearly 6% today. They own Wrangler and Lee, among other brands. They said U.S. revenue was up 11% from 2019. And it does follow some similar trends lately from McDonald's, Bloomin' Brands. Even Coca-Cola saw March volumes return to 2019 levels. All while PayPal says pandemic spending habits are going to stick and total payment volume will balloon 30% this year. Court, we have also seen the mall-based retail names do really well since January. Um, How much stronger should we expect retail to get? 
Yeah, you know, Kelly, I think, of course, that there is some degree of pent up demand, people wanting to get out of the house, whether that means that they're actually going to a mall, I don't know, but they are looking for an occasion to buy new items. And I say that because there is still a bit of a difference between what we're seeing in retail in-store and online. Online is incredibly strong from the metrics that we got recently from Adobe. They say even just between March 11th and March 31st, an additional $8 billion was spent because of those stimulus checks. That's about the equivalent of an e-commerce Black Friday. That is a lot of money. But the in-store traffic is still down from 2019, according to Sensormatic Solutions. When you look at it compared to last year, it's up like, you know, triple digits. But that makes sense because the stores were closed last year. So I think there's a lot of pent-up demand. The stimulus checks are helping. Um, Patterns going back to normal. Maybe we're finally ready to put our jeans on again. That's what Lee and Wrangler (laughs) are saying. Tapestry had strong results, ready for a strong strong new handbag look. There's a lot going on in retail right now, Kel. And Rahel, maybe online is the link between how PayPal can still expect to do so well, even while the mall retailers are also seeing their stocks performing. As long as they have an online presence and anyone with a strong one seems to be benefiting from both of these trends right now. Yeah, and I think what's interesting is that for some behavioral patterns have clearly shifted, right, even on an anecdotal level. You know, here uh, in Inglewood Cliffs, where we are in C- at CNBC, you know, we have the cafeteria, we have our app. We never used that before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. It certainly has made life a lot easier. And even as we sort of all come back to the office, you know, I think the app will stay. And so with PayPal and companies like it, it's like you learn these new sort of habits and these new ways to spend. Why go back to the old ways, especially if it becomes more convenient? And Dom, this goes back even to the Fed's message was making some comments in the past 15 minutes or so about even her, and she's usually a little bit more on the hawkish side, even she thinks these CPI and inflation trends aren't going to persist because the big question is, is this kind of like the mouse moving through the snake's body, right? This big bulge in spending and even an in inflation do we get to the other side of that and go back to normal? So, so here's the, I mean, to, to me, you, you, it's interesting you bring up the Fed because it is the government side of things that has really been behind any modicum of success that we've seen in the wake of the pandemic. There's still a lot of things wrong. There are still a lot of people out of work. However, when you have an economy that is 70 percent based upon consumer spending in some way or another, the government maybe got it right when it did the direct rounds of stimulus going back to the Trump administration until now. It's what has been providing some of the, I guess, dry powder, if you will, for many of these consumers to go out there and spend at all these different locations, despite the fact that there have been lockdowns. And certainly if those stimulus checks are still in play right now, that is what's helping kind of propel this kind of trajectory out of the pandemic. And so when you do see travel and leisure spending like this, you do see some of that mall spending. It does show that maybe it was the right way to do it. Now the question is, how do you unwind it? How do you get back to normal? normal? Exactly. And that's where Darden comes in, uh, the parent company of Olive Garden, getting a bullish note from Cowan today. Uh, They're talking about how the price target should be 164. They're giving it an upgrade to outperform, saying casual dining will remain robust this year. And it's all about act two, this sort of the other side of the pandemic idea. Shares of Darden Rahel have already doubled in the past year. Um, but this speaks to how strong is this going to be a, like a higher plateau of restaurant spending for a while or not? Yeah, you know, Kelly, actually, the crew on Halftime talked about Darden a little bit earlier today, around 1230. And I think it was Courtney Gibson talking about how there was a two hour wait at the Yard House restaurant in Atlanta. Wow. The strong. Yeah, exactly. The strong brand power of Darden and some of those companies. So I think, yeah, I mean, people are ready to get back out. We want to spend 
on jeans or whatever it is and live our best lives outside after being <laughs> cooped up the last year, Kelly. What, Dom? So I would say this. I would say I, I want to wait a few more weeks or a couple of months before I make any kind of call on this. And the reason why I say that is because for many places around the country, the long lines are because you're still operating at 25 to 50 percent capacity. Over the next few weeks, you will start to see major jurisdictions loosen those restrictions. In my home state of Connecticut, by May 19th, we're going back to normal. I mean, there's no restrictions whatsoever. So if you start to see some of that pent up demand still play out with full capacity out there, that's going to be a big key. And by the way, when we're talking about hospitality, Kelly, you got to talk about the employment picture as well, because everybody from Jim Reed over at Deutsche Bank to the NFIB, all these surveys, they Mm -hmm. show that hiring has become such a big thing. So if you're in hospitality, can you find the workers that can help you scale to that bigger level? A hundred percent. Keep that in mind if the jobs report tomorrow shows a slowdown. Court, what were you going to add? Yeah, I was just going to add that MasterCard Spending Pulse came out with some brand new spending numbers for the month of April. And of course, they're up compared to 2020. That makes sense, right? Everything was shut down. But compared to 2019, restaurant spending is up 5.7 percent. So I do think there is strength beyond just what we're seeing at the Darden names. And there's a lot of folks in the suburbs that have just been waiting to get out to Olive Garden. You need those endless breadsticks. (laughs) Yeah, and the salad uh, is my personal favorite. All right. Raise your hands if anybody thinks we... You know, we should keep the college degree. I mean, well, let me just point out what we're talking about here first. Merck CEO Ken Frazier and former IBM CEO Ginny Rometty just spoke at the Wall Street Journal CEO Council Summit. They suggested the company should drop some degree requirements for hiring in order to address inequalities in business and society. They're both saying millions of positions can be done without a college education. They and other companies have removed this requirement in recent years. IBM has. Merck has expanded hiring in some roles beyond the traditional candidate pool. And Dom, obviously, at the labor market this tight, it's just going to be one more reason to broaden their search. Uh, sign me up. <laughs> I, I am totally in agreement with both of those folks, not just because they are captains of industry and they're very smart people, but because you don't need a degree to do many of these things. And by the way, the reason why is because many of the jobs that are in so demand right now are technical based jobs. They're, they're jobs in IT. They're jobs that are skilled in nature, things that you can do with an apprenticeship if it's done right. So, I mean, I, I remember IBM is a huge pioneer in this kind of space going back years. That, I mean, I believe Ginny Rometty called it the new collar job initiative. I think it's still stuck around at IBM right now. This idea that if you want a technical job, you can find a situation with a certain skill set and aptitude. You don't need the college degree. We can teach you how to do these yeah. things. And by the way, way more cost effective if you look at the cost of college tuitions. I know that for I, I'm sure you are, too, Kelly and, and Courtney as well. When, when my kid got their social security numbers, I immediately opened up a college savings plan because I know how much it's going to cost. I don't know if the return on investment really is there anymore for traditional college Rahel, degree. People sometimes ask, well, what, they're all going to be in college at the same time. I said, maybe, maybe not. I don't really care. I mean, it's up to them to figure it out. Yeah, you know what I think is also really interesting, Kelly, is we heard the same sort of um, idea when we were talking about board diversity, right? That, like, if you really want to be about change, then you should think about some of the criteria of, of some of the people that you allow into your organization. So, for example, with boards, you know, if you've had to have been on a board to be on this board, then how do you ever sort of change the, right. you know, change the, the look of the board? And so I think it's true. If you want to be about it, then be about it. And, um, you know, maybe change the criteria, especially if it's not really 
um, that necessary. Yeah, somewhere Gary Vee is cheering uh, as he hears that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> railing about the college degree. Okay, finally, brace yourselves, everybody, because adults are racing to the orthodontist's office to straighten their smiles before the end of the pandemic. Invisalign maker Align Technology said the number of adults, get this, starting treatment in the first quarter was up 69% versus a year ago. Maybe a year ago has some pandemic of, uh, issue in it, but that's a huge gain. They and Smile Direct Club, uh, both in the red this week, but they've been major stocks over the past few years. Now, before attending all of those postponed weddings and reunions and events, people are trying to get their teeth in line while they can still hide behind a mask. I think it's just a coincidence, Court, but I actually just got fitted for a retainer again after, like, all these years. Oh. Yeah, it was just such a great deal. They have this cool wand, and like you're, these orthodontist offices are like amazing these days. It was 550 bucks, and they said, we can't fix it. That would be too much work, but this will keep it from getting worse. Kelly, that's so funny that you say that, because I, too, was like a major braces wearer, and I had the headgear <laughs> and the retainers and the whole thing. And I was diligent. I wore those retainers every night until I was 22. And then I thought, like, okay, I've been Same. doing this long enough. Yes. I took them out. Sure enough. On the bottom, like a couple teeth, don't look too close, <laughs> have shifted just a little bit. And I will tell you, I've started to think about, should I, should I get that corrected? Could the Smile Direct or the Invisalign be a product for yes. me? So I really identified with this story and I thought, oh my gosh, am I going to do that again? Because my orthodontist retired. He said, sorry, I threw away your molds. Yeah. <laughs> no, so you should. Over. I encourage all of us old millennials to go show up. <laughs> they can do it quickly, Dom. And they, they have this like, it, I actually didn't go the Invisalign route, but a lot of people do if it's more of, of an issue. I, 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 this did resonate with because because I'm just like Courtney. I had all the braces and the headgear. Thank you, mom and dad, by the way, for paying the thousands <laughs> of dollars back then, not even inflation adjusted right. for paying for that. But now my teeth are a little bit, a little bit wonky on the bottom there they're not they're not oh, as straight as they used oh, wow. to be and so maybe i need to go and do some of this stuff but i'm not sure if it's a vanity thing for me i just it's more of an ocd i'd like to have my teeth straight and you know you know in for a penny we're hell with the perfect smile we're all You're exposing our deepest darkest smile secrets on air <laughs> I mean, listen, yeah, I mean, with the popularity of those companies like Invisalign and Smile Direct Club, I think it's just sort of top of mind for so many people now that you want to have a nice smile. And yeah, we've been hidden behind the mask. So why not? It sort of goes back to my original point, Kelly, that when we come out of this pandemic, we want to be living our best lives yes. in our jeans at a garden's <laughs> restaurant and apparently with a nice smile. Boom. Jeans, olive garden and a winning smile. <laughs> Eating breadsticks. Yeah, exactly. Rahel Solomon, Dom Chu and Courtney Reagan. That does it for Rapid Fire today. Still ahead, shares of Cars.com are lower on weaker than expected earnings, and they're down about 7% over the past month as the chip shortage wreaks havoc on new car production. Used car demand and prices are surging, though. We're going to talk to Cars.com CEO Alex Vetter about all of this in a first on CNBC interview right after this break. Welcome back. More evidence that the global chip shortage is having a huge impact on the auto industry. According to Cars.com, the online marketplace for new and used cars, new car inventory has fallen more than 15 percent since the chip shortage began, with most of that drop happening in March. Here to discuss that and more is Alex Vetter. He is the CEO, president and co-founder of Cars.com. They just had first quarter results this morning. Alex, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Kelly. Good to see you. What's your exposure on the new side versus the used side? Because those seem like very different businesses right now. Right. Only about 20 percent of our revenue comes in from the new car market. But certainly the current chip shortage 
does have an unforeseen impact on the business as we look ahead to Q2. Sure. And that impact is mostly, it seems, that there's not the cars that people want. So um, are they turning to used cars? How much substitution is happening? Well, I think that's what, where the story is yet to be written. I, what most people are hearing on the new car chip shortage is the impact in the new car market. But it's actually one of the reasons why our business is booming on the used car side of the house. Um, even though inventories are down 20 percent, used car sales at local dealerships, which comprise the majority of our revenue, um, are, are really booming briskly right now. Prices are up uh, 5% on new cars. Used car prices are up 14%, wow. which is why dealerships across the country are reporting record profits. And they're using that profitability to invest more in tech. Where is this all going? For how many months can the situation persist? Well, certainly we're learning new news every day, but, but importantly, we're seeing a variance across different OEMs who have different supplier impacts. But we're seeing some OEMs signaling that, that some new car inventory could be coming back as soon as June, and others are, are talking about later in the summer, perhaps as late as August or even into September. But it seems as though anyone who's buying a used car instead of the new one they wanted isn't going to say, well, I'll go buy the new, new one, too, when it's available, right? So this had to have been a permanent shift of market share from the new to used market. Is it going to last beyond this year, though? I mean, as, as kind of the next wave of buyers comes in, is this a, a, some kind of higher plateau for used car buying or anything like that? No, I don't think so. I mean, we're seeing some strong growth in first-time car buyers. We're, we're seeing younger generations craving vehicle ownership. I think this is part of the lasting impact of COVID as people are shunning mass transit systems in favor, favor, in favor of private ownership. 38% of the sales growth is happening in urban areas, and we're even seeing purchase timelines collapse by almost 50%. So people are entering in the market and they're buying much faster than before. We think that once new car inventories are returned, there'll be some normalization on pricing, but we think car ownership is a very durable trend. That's fascinating. And again, it goes back to whether investments in ride-sharing companies make sense right now because of this big shift. So, you know, what about cars.com with all of the competition now for online car shopping? How do you differentiate? Well, look, we've got the number one brand in the category. It's not too hard to remember a name that's synonymous with car shopping, cars.com. Um, and what's exciting about our quarterly performance is that we had 12% growth in just organic traffic, people organically typing our name and coming to us directly. So we're able to spend less in marketing and we're adding dealerships at an amazing rate. We added over 450 dealers in the quarter. We also grew our average pricing. The average dealer pricing was also up 8%. Dealers are realizing that the only way to advertise in an inventory-starved environment are on platforms that cater to actual inventory, hmm. as opposed to mass marketing or traditional advertising, if you will. So what's happening with the sales of electric vehicles right now? Because is are all of these shifts you're describing, both from you know the uh, geographies and the lifestyle shifts and the shortages of new cars, is that helping or hurting EV adoption? I would have to imagine it's hurting in a little bit, a little bit of a headwind. Well, look, we, we see less than 5% search share for EV vehicles on our platform, which you can search all makes and models. It was at its height in California where there were big federal subsidies for EV sales in California. And even then, it only got to 8% share in California. But certainly with, with the increased programs around supporting an EV infrastructure and growing selection and production by the OEMs, we do think EV sales are going to be on a positive trend and are going to continue to grow. We don't think that displacement is going to happen anytime soon, however. Love the facts and figures. Alex, thanks for bringing all that to us.
Sure, Kelly. Thanks for having us. Alex Vetter is the CEO of Cars.com. Still ahead, it's not just a higher capital gains tax that would hit real estate investors in Biden's new plan. We'll get the other two proposed hikes as well. We'll tell you about those after this quick break. And a quick programming note, ARK Invest CEO Kathy Wood will join Closing Bell for an exclusive interview tomorrow at 3 p.m. to discuss her latest picks. You definitely don't want to miss it. Welcome back. President Biden's tax plan includes three hikes that experts say could make investing in or selling real estate less attractive. Robert Frank is here with more on this triple tax threat. Robert. Oh, Kelly, real estate's always gotten very special treatment in the tax code. Now, President Biden plans to change all that. Now, the first change is the elimination of so-called 1031 exchanges. That basically allows property investors to roll their gains from one property sale into another without paying the capital gains tax. Under Biden's plan, they would have to pay that tax, which leads to the other one, which is the capital gains tax itself would jump from 23.8% to 43.4% and would apply to any sale of real estate for those making more than a million dollars in a year. Now, that means the sale of your home and your income, if it adds up to more than a million dollars for that year, you would have to pay the tax. Now, the third is the elimination of the step up in basis. That basically affects inherited property. So if you inherited property, you would have to pay a capital gains tax on the gain of the previous owner, even if you don't sell it when you inherit it. But again, your gain on that income and the uh, the gain itself has to be over a million dollars for the tax to apply. The real estate industry, though, already fighting these changes. The National Association of Realtors sending a letter to Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen saying the proposals would reduce growth, shrink affordable housing, and penalize many hardworking and enterprising Americans who have spent their lives saving and building equity in these properties. Kelly, you think of all the properties from the baby boomers about to pass down to their kids and how much those properties have gained in value since they bought them. And this could be a large number. I mean, it it puts a gun to their head and basically says, then you should sell it yourself, because if you die, your kids are going to have to pay the tax bill. Now, is that only true if the kids earn over a million dollars a year? Because that just seems like a cruel thing to do. Well, it's, it's if the sale, if your, your gain on the sale plus your income in that year is over a million, and then there's some exclusions for primary residence, but assuming it's not your primary residence, then any amount over that million with your income and the gain combined will be subject to that higher tax. I ask because up. this is where, you know, we've been talking a lot about capital gains as it relates to the stock market, but if this same thing applies to businesses, imagine if you built a business, multi-million dollar business, and you die, does that mean your, your inheritors have to deal with pretending as if you sold it and paying the the equivalent tax bill? Yeah, Kelly, great point and huge issue. Now, the Biden administration has said that for the step up, they will exclude uh, farms and family businesses as long as those family businesses continue to be run by the family. Now, I don't know quite how you determine some of that. Yeah. Uh, Maybe they will also include real estate, but that's why they have uh, put in those exclusions Family companies that continue to be run by the family would not require you to pay that tax. It's a very tricky uh, line to walk as they try to raise revenue. Robert, thanks so much for explaining all. We appreciate it. Robert Frank. That does it for The Exchange today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. 
How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a Remax agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated.